Hey guys, you're listening to episode 53 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today, we're talking with Chris and Kurt Chaffin, who have had a financial finish line together for the last 15 years. there. Welcome to the show. My name is Keelan, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Cody. In this episode, we're talking with Chris and Kurt Chaffin, who have had a financial finish line together for the last 15 years. Kurt is an allergist, and his training path through medical school, residency, and fellowship parallels mine in many ways, serving as a catalyst for their decision to set a finish line. Today, they share an honest and encouraging look into their experience with the finish line, and we're excited to have them with us. Before we get started, You know, this podcast has grown almost exclusively by word of mouth. For those of you who have helped us get this message out by sending a link to a friend or sharing on social media, we just want to say thank you. It makes a real impact. If you think this or any of our conversations are thought-provoking or inspiring, take a second and share it with someone who might need to hear it. We have been blown away at how God has used some of these stories to make a radical impact in the world of generosity and missions, and you very well may be a link in that chain. All right, with that, let's get to the interview. All right, here we are with Kurt and Chris Chaffin. Thanks so much for joining us today, guys. Oh, it's great to be here. Thank you. So why don't you guys kick us off just telling us a little bit about who you are and some of your story. Right. So I guess as it relates to this, I grew up in a very strong Christian family and became a Christian when I was quite young. We lived in Cameroon when I was much younger, as my dad was a medical missionary there for a couple of years. So certainly it was in the the DNA of our family just to think globally with regard to missions and understanding that there were people around the world who were in quite different circumstances that we were in. And, you know, I I was there when I was quite young, and I can't say as an eight-year-old that that really sunk into my heart. But at the same time, it was kind of always a part of our family discussion. There were missionaries in and out of our house frequently, in and out of our churches, and, and we had frequent correspondence with them. And this was back in the days when we sent tapes to each other. We were recorded on a little tape recorder and sent it overseas and and listened to it back and forth, that sort of thing. So it's always been there in the back of my mind. But, you know, through childhood, in some ways, that was just the normal thing in my house. And I can't say, you know, looking back now, I'm like, did I fully understand that? Well, no, of course not. With regard to giving, my parents were always giving to different missionaries, things overseas. And again, I think the main gift to me was to open my eyes to know that, yes, there are needs here in the U.S., but globally there are tremendous needs. And so as I became a teenager and began getting jobs and that sort of thing, a 10% tithe was just what we did. I don't even really remember that being taught or told that I need to. It probably was, but that was just what I did. And that went all the way through whether I was working a job in the summers at camp or that sort of thing. And then kind of fast forward, I went to you know to college and to medical school, and then you get to residency where you are making some degree of money there. And again, the 10% was just thought of as just what you do. I can't say I was doing it out of generosity or out of some great heart need, 
but that was just kind of my normal. And I just, I say all that just as background, just to kind of tell you how I've approached generosity now. But as I'm finishing up residency, that's when luckily Chris came into my life. And maybe Chris, you want to tell about your childhood and then we'll talk about our time together. Sure. I became a Christian when I was about 12 and my parents became Christians about the same time I did. And they were kind of known for their hospitality. We were always having people over at our house and they were always entertaining people. And so when missionaries would come to town, they would stay at our house too. And But my family was, they're way more loosey-goosey than Kurt's family is. We're a little more disorganized and fly by the seat of our pants than Kurt's family. And so my parents... I saw their generosity more as, you know, sitting in the church pew. If a missionary or someone came to speak at church, they would be the ones who just pull out a hundred dollar bill and just be like, Oh God bless you. You know? And, but there was really no method to the badness. It was just like, here's some money, here's some dollars, here's a hundred dollars. But I don't know if they ever knew how much money they were giving away. It was just like, here's a little here, here's that. And whereas Kurt's family has always been more methodical in their giving. And so I'm sure my parents tithe. We never talked about it. I don't think they even know how to spell budget. I mean, I think they're just, I mean, they're awesome. I mean, I love my family, but I mean, the fact that I keep a budget is still like so foreign to my mom. It's hilarious. The conversations we get in, it's just comical to her that I wouldn't just go out and buy whatever. It just drives her crazy. And I'm like, actually, we kind of talk about these things together, you know? (laughs) So anyway, that's kind of how my family differs from the family that I've married into. And so I was Kurt's like worst nightmare to marry because, you know, (laughs) he had some training to do basically, but he was very patient with me. I mean, I'm a sociologist. He's an engineer in a position. So you can imagine the the different personalities coming together (laughs) in marriage. And I had to learn how to spell budget too. And that took a minute, but it has been a really great transition for me. So I think, Yes, we came to it from very different backgrounds, but I think we've gone through this journey very much together and very much both learning to take us to a different sense of generosity. So financially, Keelan, much similar to your story, well, I was in residency, we got married at the end of our residency. I was going the plan and what eventually happened is I went back to fellowship, but I worked as a pediatrician for several years so that I knew I was going to have an increased income level for a number of years, three or four years. And then I was going back to fellowship where my income would drop again. And so we kind of realized this ahead of time. So before we went back to fellowship, we actually reduced what we were going to spend arbitrarily so that when we then got to fellowship, we could actually spend some of those savings. And basically over those five or six years, we would actually spend roughly the same amount even though our income was fluctuating significantly. So that when we finished fellowship, I did an allergy fellowship, so some more training there, and then became a practicing physician. Again, we had a jump in income. And it wasn't but a month or two into that that we quickly realized we were already used to the concept of arbitrarily limiting how much we spent. And we realized we don't need to be spending this on ourselves And so we actually sat down, and I know it seems ridiculous, but we wrote out for the next 50 years roughly what we thought we were going to be making. And we kind of had a, this is what we're going to be making in one side, and these are the expenditures we're going to need on an ongoing basis. And then 
you know, bigger things like kids college and things like that. And we, we didn't have kids at that point. And so it was at that point, and this was back in 2006, that we then set a limit of what we were going to spend on ourselves. And we were not nearly as complex as some of the information on your website, which is fantastic. But we looked up, you know, what is the median income for the U.S.? What is the median income in our area where we're living, you know, with kids, not kids, that sort of thing. And, you know, we prayed through that, thinking through, okay, if God provided us with this and the average person is spending this in the U.S., you know, why are we going to think that we should be able to spend more on ourselves? You know, as you can tell, we have different personalities and I tend to be very methodical thinking about it. And there's not, you know, there was not some sort of celebration when we did this. Chris would probably want to do that. That would probably be the appropriate thing to do. But mine was very much of just a methodical thinking through, okay, we know that God has not given us this money just to spend on ourselves. How can we limit this lifestyle creep that we see happening all around us? When we had, you know, spent already several years together, very happy, not spending a lot on ourselves. And, you know, there's no reason to surround ourselves with all all of this. That's how we came to set. We didn't call it a finish line, but that's how we came to set ourselves a finish line on our spending. So what happened as a result of actually choosing a finish line for yourselves on a heart level? So Chris and I, even through our dating years, were doing some work overseas just brief sort of things, but spending time. Chris grew up, even as a teenager, being involved in overseas mission work, short-term sort of projects. And when we got married, we actually took about a year off of work, or to say it differently, about a month after we were married, we were both unemployed. (laughs) Now, this was planned in the sense that I was finishing my residency. She had been a youth director for about four or five years, Mm -hmm. and that term was coming to an end. And we, instead of having a traditional wedding, we took some of those funds, and we actually just got married at one of our engagement parties, and we took those funds. Yes, (laughs) very fun. Yes, it was great. (laughs) Yeah, that's a whole other story, but maybe not relevant to this podcast. But we then traveled for about a year, Some just kind of some fun travel. Other times we were working at hospitals overseas. We spent about three months in Papua New Guinea working there. We did some work down in St. Lucia at a hospital there. And so our hearts were already attuned to helping others overseas. And again, you know, I think there are needs here in the U.S. and I don't want to minimize those, but it's hard not to when you see both sides of it, when you've spent time overseas, it's hard not to think, hey, this is probably where we should be spending our efforts. So back to your question as to whether our hearts were changed, it wasn't so much that they were changed, but as we were given resources, we knew immediately that these probably should not be spent on us. These are not for our consumption and that we would really like to give these elsewhere. I love when we get the chance to talk to other physicians because I come from a medical background as well. And my story, like yours, is very intimately intertwined into my path through med school and residency. And in my case, I think that really was actually how I discovered this, the whole kind of idea of a finish line in the first place is kind of like you said, the just 
unusual fluctuation in income that comes through all those different stages that's kind of forced upon you <laughs> and you have to kind of figure out a way to grapple with it. And so that's where my wife and I started wrestling with the question, well, how much do we actually need if, you know, God's going to give us kind of arbitrary amounts through all these different stages? Why don't we figure out what we actually need and then allow him to use whatever beyond that for his kingdom and whatever he's going to do with it? How much of your own path to a finish line do you think came through your training path versus kind of what God was doing in your heart elsewhere and, you know, related to your upbringing or some of these other influences in your life. Right. And I'm not sure until today I've ever thought of it this way, but I would say that God had been preparing our hearts all along through lots of different things, childhood experiences, experiences that we had had as a couple. And then, yes, when you bring in some of that arbitrary income fluctuation, then, you know, it just throws it into stark contrast of what you need to live on versus what you're being given. And if you have sat under Jesus's teaching and know how much that he loves the poor, loves the downtrodden, and has called us to do the same, then when you're given these resources, it's one of those things that just becomes so obvious, I think. So, I would like to tell you that it, it was a matter of, you know, us sitting down and having some long Bible study and saying, okay, what does God want us to do with our income? And maybe in a sense, that's what it was, you know, from all of childhood time spent in church and listening to scripture, knowing what God's heart was. But it was really more a function of externals in the way that God brought us here, where he allowed us to have these experiences and allowed us to then have this sudden income. And then it just points out that, oh, right, this is not for us. You're clearly, this is not for our consumption. I agree with all that. And I think we were already struggling. I mean, after that year of traveling, we were really struggling with, do we want to do this full time? Like we really just fell in love with Papua New Guinea and especially in the people there and the other physicians and their families there and really prayed for a long time and struggled with, do we want to, you know, do this full time? And I think by nature, that's just where our hearts are. And I know it's, it's a lot harder than it seems to be a full-time missionary. So I don't want to act like, oh, and we could have just jumped in that easily, but that's definitely where our hearts were drawn. And so trying to decide if Kurt wanted to come back after pediatrics and be an allergist or do missions, that was a really hard decision. I mean, I remember some of these conversations and how gut-wrenching they were for us. I honestly could cry. One of those conversations was with certainly someone we look up to, Bill and Marsha McCoy, spent their entire lives on the mission field in Africa and then the last 25 or 30 years in Papua New Guinea, and they have just retired in the last few years. But I remember one of the things they told us, they said, you know, unless God has shown you that this is the only place that you can serve him, then you probably should not commit to full-time mission work. And... I think that was a very wise decision. And I almost resented that for a while in the sense that, as Chris is saying, our hearts in some ways very much wanted to be there. We love the people that's not having all the trappings of a U.S. life was very attractive. Mm -hmm. And perhaps Bill saw that as being too much of a driving focus for mm -hmm. us and not really being. It felt um, like an easy way what, out where for Jesus, us in a way. Yeah. In a weird sense, the easier thing to us would have almost been to be missionaries. Now that's, 
I say that without having actually done mm-hmm. that. And so I don't want to minimize what it is, as you said, all the hardships that missionaries right, go right, through. Right. But I, again, I may have resented that from Bill, and I'm not sure I understood it from from the Lord either. And I really didn't have peace about that until after we adopted our kids. And then I kind of realized like, oh, this is where we're supposed mm-hmm. to be. And yes, this is, this is the hard thing I've called you to do is to raise these kids. Mm-hmm. And so who knows? I don't know that you ever for sure know, but I think we were led in the right direction there. That's, Julia. that's good. I do remember that hard conversation with Bill and then thinking, okay, well, well then our job is for you to make money here and then to give it away. Like that's our job as, that's our job as missionaries then, you know, like that's what we're called to do. And so. That's what we've been trying to do and what we need to continue to try to do better at. Towards the end of college, I had not quite as dramatic of an experience, but a similar kind of experience where I had grown a lot in faith through college. And at the end, I had lots of friends going into formal missions work or pastoral work or basically vocational ministry. And I was really struggling with the idea of, is that really where the main place that God calls people to work for his kingdom. And at least in my case, I didn't have a lot of clear examples of what anything else looked like outside of vocational ministry. And I don't know if you guys found that to be the case as well, that it was, it's just hard to find role models or people to follow who are working in the workplace, business world, medicine, whatever that looks like in the U S but, have a deep heart for missions. Obviously, we have many people like that on our podcast, but just in the world out there, it can be hard to find those kind of role models. And I don't know if that was part of the struggle that you guys found as well. I think so. I think that in some ways we were looking for people who were you know, living way below their means so that they could support other people. And, you know, I think the funny thing is, when you start searching for those people to be mentors, to be role models, you realize, well, the people who are living that way are probably going to be doing it very, very quietly. Mm -hmm. And they're not going to be advertising this on a billboard and they're going to be very tough to find. I talked to different pastors and all to to try to locate that community. And I'm not sure I really have. And, you know, just to promote what you guys are doing. I mean, I think just knowing that there are other people out there doing the same thing has been such a comfort Mm -hmm. I think doing this by yourself can be very difficult in the same way that, again, I you know, don't want to compare us to missionaries. So maybe this is a bad analogy, but in the sense that missionaries are often out there by themselves and just getting letters, getting calls from people is just so reassuring to know that they're not forgotten, that they're part of what the Lord is doing globally and that what they're doing is not in isolation, but it's part of his entire plan. Mm-hmm. What you guys are doing, I think, is very helpful in connecting Mm -hmm. people and just letting them know that, hey, there are other people that think you're on the right path and keep going. Mm -hmm. I think we've definitely had a similar feeling as we meet people and talk to people and hear their stories. And people are vulnerable about what's difficult about the decisions that you were led to throughout life. It can be a comfort to say, oh, there's a lot of people out there who are quietly going about the same things that we're trying to work through. And to create a sense of community around that has been so powerful for me and I'm certain for Keelan as well. I did want to go back a little bit and 
Chris, dive into a specific aspect for you and your experience to go from, as you said, flying by the seat of your pants financially to learning how to build and implement a budget to eventually a finish line. I'm curious how it was to navigate that process. And I'm reflecting on when Keelan first really dove deep with me and he had built an early version of the calculator on the website and he was walking through the numbers and it was, he has some of an engineering background as well. So it's interesting to come at it from a numbers perspective, but then also to dive in on a spiritual and emotional level. There's a certain set of considerations on that side of things too, that I really had to navigate with my wife. I'm just curious what that process was like for you. Well, Lovely and oh, full of flowers. So, it's just the best thing you've precious. ever done is what he you meant to saint. say. <laughs> no, he he was patient. I think the best thing that Kurt did for me with a budget was he made sure that in all the line items that there was a little fund called the Chrissy Fund. And even if it was just like $20 a month or whatever, like I could do whatever I wanted to with it. I could go blow it at Starbucks or whatever. And I didn't have to tell him I can do whatever I want. I can go buy $20 worth of hot tamales at the gas station or whatever. And I didn't have to tell him what it was. Just having like a little bit of freedom, you know, to blow. That's just what I needed. So that was brilliant. But anyway, I mean, yes, I didn't love it for sure. (laughs) In the beginning, I'd say it took years for me to get used to it. But it has definitely it feels like so much more freedom now than, you know, whenever any of my friends here, I have a budget, you know, it's horrifying to them. And I'm like, no, I mean, it is so much more freeing. It's just like the whole analogy of kids not having boundaries and not having a fence in their front yard and going out and getting run over. And it's like, no, the fence gives them so much more freedom to play freely, you know, and just enjoy that freedom in that space. And that's how I feel like our budget is. Tell me more about the freedom aspect. And even earlier on this interview, I used the word limit, but we've really moved away from using terminology like restriction or limit because it's really not that. We like the term finish line because it is more descriptive of what's going on, but what it leads to is really what it's all about. The result of actually figuring out an answer to how much is enough what it leads to is that freedom and the joy that comes with applying that freedom in the kingdom. And I'd love to hear what your experiences have been like once you got past that adjustment period, then you have this margin and you have to decide what to do with it. In my opinion, that's where the real fun started. Well, and I think you're right. I think, you know, the budgeting is simply a tool to allow you to decide ahead of time what you want to do rather than come back at the end of the day and figure out what did we just spend money on. And so even outside of a generosity standpoint, you know, do you want to spend money on a vacation or do you want to spend money on, you know, nicer clothes? I mean, I think you budget just allows you to decide ahead of time, but certainly when you bring that into the Christian perspective, as you said, it allows us to decide, okay, what do I really need? And maybe even say need is the wrong word, but how much am I going to spend on myself and my family and my wants versus how much am I able to free up and use? And I certainly think of this in kind of three different phases. I think in terms of, you know, how much have we been given 
And I think some people are very, very good at making money. And I think that is a gift. And I think sometimes in Christian circles, we look at that as if that's something evil or something tainted about that. But I don't think so. I think that's a great gift. Of course, the problem is the second step is we have to pry our greedy hands off of that. And I think that's the hard part of it. And I think that's where where Chris and I have really been focused on maybe the last 10, 15 years. I definitely would like to sit here and tell you that that has been a great, joyful process. And I just wake up in the morning. I can't wait to give more money away. And that's not necessarily my daily experience of this. But certainly, you know, the third step, being able to give money away has been, you know, fantastic. And thinking back, we have really, in the last decade or so, we have focused in really on two different ministries, one in Papua New Guinea and one over in Burundi, both of which are medical facilities and medical training where they're training the nationals there to provide health care in the area. And so you're not only providing immediate care now, and of course, both of them are very closely interwoven with providing evangelical care also to both patients and trainees. But then, you know, the training of the next generation of nationals to be able to care and they'll do a much better job caring for their own people than we will coming in as Westerners. It's getting off into a tangent, but certainly I know it's already been talked about. I believe you all interviewed Brian Fickert, but his book, When Helping Hurts, you know, has just been, was, mm-hmm. was a game changer for us. And again, it, it's not one of those things that you even have to argue out. It's one of those things that once it's pointed out to you, particularly if you've <laughs> ever spent any time overseas, you immediately see like, oh, mm-hmm. that's exactly what we did. And we thought we were helping. And I absolutely see now that we mm-hmm. cause more problems. Anyway, so Chris, I don't know if you have anything to say about the joy of giving. I definitely, you know, as my engineer spreadsheet kind of personality comes out, I probably exhibit less of the joy, but the flip side is that's where my heart is. And that's right. At the end of the day, I sleep much more peacefully knowing that, hey, these resources that were given to us, we've been able to provide to other yeah. people. And I think you're hard on yourself. I don't think every morning you wake up and feel like you have to pry your money out of your greedy hands. I do it before you get up. <laughs> you do wake up early, actually. But no, I mean, you are spreadsheet professional. So, and if you weren't though, we probably wouldn't be giving much away because I'd be more like my parents. So I'm thankful for your, you know, the way that your mind works, because if we didn't have a system, we'd probably be in trouble. So sometimes I think even though our heart is in it, I think you do have to go through the process sometimes and just make it happen, whether your heart and your feelings are behind it necessarily. We know what the right thing to do is. You've got to make it happen. And then your joy is going to come behind it. And if it doesn't, sometimes I think that's okay. Like we still know this is what the Lord has called us to. And that's how I feel. And (laughs) Kurt came across just yesterday, somehow he came across one of his grandmother's four spiritual law booklets. I don't know where this came from. I haven't seen one of these in about 30 years. And I was like, oh my goodness, I haven't looked at these in forever. And on the back page of one of these, I was trying to remember, do I remember what the four spiritual laws is? There's a picture of a train and it says, you know, the front car, the engine is facts. And then the middle car is faith. And the last car is feelings. Yeah. You can't run the train on feelings. You know, you can't. So the facts have to be in the front. So your feelings are going to come behind. And if that car is not on there, that's okay. You know, but the facts 
are, we're called to give this away. This is not our money. You know, this is the Lord's money. And if the feelings car is on there, well, awesome. Yeah, I love that analogy. I actually think that's a great application of the train metaphor. And what we have found in my own life is that having some kind of a structure, whether it's a finish line or some other kind of structure, but just having a thought out kind of way that guides you in how you manage your finances and your giving or what you use to build God's kingdom allows you to not have to think so hard. And also that every decision doesn't have to be guided by emotion because before we had any kind of a structure, God was starting to kind of stretch us in the way of generosity, but it would be like at an event or something. And then we would feel led to give this one time or something like that. And then it would be kind of quiet for a while in our life until the next kind of big emotional thing like that. And having a finish line at first, we didn't really know what to do with the money that we were setting aside. We had only made it as far as actually setting a finish line and then, you know, starting to implement it. And we started to see the margin build up. And that's where I think a lot of the feelings of joy came in for us, for my wife and I, because then we started to say like, well, that now this is starting to be a substantial amount. Like we get to manage this along with God and to be a part of some really cool stories with that. And there's, you know, all kinds of different ways that that has played out in our lives and that those are different for everybody. But having that structure gave us the margin we needed to experience a lot of that joy And I think that's kind of like what you guys are saying, that there's a fact spreadsheet kind of side to it of having some discipline and thinking things out ahead of time, but then also getting to experience the joy and being a part of what God's doing. It's all kind of interlinked. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and honestly, it has, you know, I'm making it sound like it's all, it's been all fun for me with these facts and everything that Kurt brings, but this has been harder for me because in our relationship, I'm definitely more of the relationship person where, you know, I'll have old youth kids coming and Kurt did young life and he did youth work too, but he's more of the thinking kind and I'm more of the feeling kind. And so when I have youth kids come in and they're going on short-term trips and I'm like, sure, you know, I want to give a thousand dollars here or a thousand dollars there. And when we do that, of course, that's taking our money away from these other things that we would be giving to. And so that can still be hard for me. These are sometimes these are some of my best friends' kids that are coming to me. And then I'm the one that's feeling like a complete jerk by being one of the only moms. It's like, yeah, I'm not going to give to that. And sometimes I do anyway. And sometimes, you know, Kurt and I agree like, yes, let's just go on and give. But I think, you know, Kurt, you're better at telling this. Yeah. So a few years ago, one of the things that has worked well with our kids is we've bought lots of children's books with regard to telling stories of migrants or telling stories of, you know, people who are looking for water. There's a children's book. I guess it's a children's book. Mm -hmm. It's a long walk to water. Mm -hmm. Is that what the name of it is? But it's really just grabbed our our kids' attention. And so they were able to kind of picture what that would be like. But we have begun to use the analogy of thinking, You know, I think sometimes when Jesus' command to love others like we love ourselves, sometimes that's hard to even envision what that would be. I think this is really just more of a good way to look at that command. We should love other people like we would love our own children, because that's almost easier to see. So, you know, I think 
for me as a dad, daughters are, are the easiest ones to kind of put in that. You, we first started looking at this when the Syrian migrant refugee crisis was happening a few years ago. And, you know, what would we do if we had a daughter who was in one of those camps asking for our help versus if we had a daughter here who was asking for some help to go on a short-term missions project? You know, where would we spend our money? It's abundantly clear it would all go overseas. We would tell the person here, look, I, you can probably find some money elsewhere or you could get a job. Because we could help so something. many more kids in this migrant camp, right. you know, in this refugee right. camp. Your money goes so much further overseas than it does over here, you know, and right. it just it just seems like such a no-brainer when you think of it like that. Well, and when you begin to set finish lines and you think of think of, OK, what would I do in my life if my daughter again was in that camp and I needed to get her help? You know, we would not be going on vacations. We would be spending all our money over there. We would be using all of our influence uh, to help. I think, you know, when you do that, as Jesus many times, he points us toward the perfect, knowing that we're not going to get there. And just it points out how much we need his grace. And so I think you can think about that a little bit wrongly in the sense of you can get very legalistic very quickly and say, okay, well, I'm not going to spend, I can't buy my wife flowers anymore. I have to send all that money overseas. I'm not there, but I do think you have to be careful. But it has been a very clarifying kind of mental exercise to go through as we decide, okay, we've been given these resources, where should they go? That's a really interesting point and something that having only set a finish line a couple of years ago, I deal with frequently still with my wife is trying to think about when do you cross that line into luxurious spending? If you're planning a vacation, like you want to take time and invest in the marriage, but how much is too much? And navigating that on a really specific level over and over and over. And we're learning and we're growing together to try to answer that. But I'm curious how you've navigated that over a longer period of time when it comes to large expenses, but also just the daily decisions. It's hard. It's really hard. I mean, gosh, it's really hard. <laughs> when Kurt was finishing up his allergy fellowship in Michigan, we were trying to decide where we were moving back to. And we were deciding between basically two neighborhoods. Are we going to move back to where we were, where we used to live, which is upper middle class, or should we start over and I don't know how to phrase it, but it was like, why are we going to go on and just go all the way back up? And why don't we start low? Like, because once you go high, it's like you're not going back, kind of like with your vacations. So I think when we moved back to Chattanooga from our time in Michigan, we knew that where we had been living was an upper middle class area. And we knew that that would bring with it certain pressures and expectations, not only for us, but for our kids. And so we initially we moved back, moved to a different area that was much lower socioeconomic class. And it had immediate effects on our way of thinking, certainly our way of spending. I think any time that somebody's gone through a lot of training positions, I think are classic for this, where you go through and you know you're going to be making more money. You build up in your mind these things you want, and they're the classic things, cars and houses and that kind of thing. And so I just knew, I, you know, I was driving a, a Camry, and I just knew I needed a Volvo. And I was going to do that pretty soon after we moved back to town. And after moving back and not being surrounded by that kind of affluence, just within a few weeks, I thought, 
What am I mm-hmm. thinking? I don't, I don't need that. You know, in some ways, that's a trite example. And if you drive a Volvo, great. I don't have anything against that. But it just gets repeated a thousand times. So what kind of restaurants are you going to go to? What kind because of vacations? Because it's who you surround you yourself with. And all of a sudden, all and, that becomes normalized, you know? Right. right. And it's harder. And now we've moved up <laughs> over the last 10 years. And we've surrounded ourselves with an upper middle class. And it's a lot harder because now we're telling our kids... Yeah, but we're all trying to live below means, which we're not doing a super fantastic job. I mean, we're trying. Well, I think as part of this discussion, we need to clearly say that, you know, if I brought many people from around the world and had them follow me for about 24 hours, I think I would probably still be embarrassed of what my lifestyle is. I think there can be a lot of pride involved in this and just about everything I do, I think there's pride involved. And so I just want to clearly confess that we are probably not where we should be and not where we want to be. And, you know, I guess that's the mantra of the Christian life. So when we look at this, we are, Chris and I know that we're on a downward trajectory of what we want to be spending. That's hard enough for us. But then what we've done is we put our kids into an atmosphere where all of their friends are on a different path And yet we are asking them to go do this path. And, you know, they didn't sign up for this. And so I do think, I think the entire point of this sort of conversation is to, you know, just to point out where you live and who you surround yourself with, both for you and your kids, has major implications on how much and how easy it is to be Mm -hmm. as generous as we're called to be. Yeah. I mean, it makes it really hard when all of our kids' friends are going on these awesome, you know, vacations. And we're trying to bring it down a little bit. So, well, I think that's why a finish line is so fantastic because it still allows you to do some things that you want to do. You're just not going to do all of them. And so you can decide ahead of time. So, you know, I know on the podcast, you all have had some good conversations about Christian education. And I think people who are thinking along those lines often have the same hard decisions to make about public education versus Christian education, which is quite expensive. And so we had, you know, under our finish line, we had been sending our kids to private Christian schools. And so that meant not doing some other things that we wanted to do. We then made the decision about a year ago to begin homeschooling our kids. So last year we homeschooled them, which then allowed us both time, but also from a financial standpoint, without changing our finish line, to be able to go do some significant traveling, which was great. But again, it's not, you know, whether you should travel or whether you shouldn't. It's just about when you set that limit, it then allows you to prioritize, okay, what is important for the raising of our kids, knowing that we're not going to do everything that we want to do. I think that that is actually very true and probably fairly common among people that have set some sort of a financial finish line or structure like that. I know our life in my family probably looks very confusing to people because of everything that you were just talking about, have really tried to figure out what are those things that we care about. And for those things, then we make them happen. And then for everything else that is not a priority for us, we just ruthlessly cut it back because it's not as important to us. And rather than just do the best of everything, you really kind of figure out and distill down for your family or for you what really matters and put your energy or your budget or whatever you have set aside for you and your family 
towards those kind of things. And that's worked really well for our family, but I know that it makes our family look really weird sometimes from the outside because, you know, people have trouble rationalizing <laughs> the ups and downs of it all. Yeah. Yeah. Cause we're not living like paupers. Well, like you said, we have a couple things that we, we love doing and that's what we're doing and the other things we're not doing. So. Right. Keelan, how are you envisioning your kids growing up with that? And what steps are you taking to kind of let them in on what you're trying to do and to kind of to raise them up in that same way so they understand it. I don't know how old your kids are. My oldest is six right now. So we have ways ahead of us of time for teaching and growing. But at least at this stage, I mean, most of my kids can't really count yet. <laughs> but <laughs> but my oldest, I think, what we're doing with her is to try to expose her to the things that we care about. And so I've had conversations and I usually try to keep them short, but I've had conversations basically saying things like, you know, not everywhere in the world does everybody know about Jesus. There are places where nobody has heard about him at all. Or, you know, telling her that there are people who live radically different lives in terms of what they expect as normal and like even just having food and water and stuff. And and I know we all know this, but to her, like that's, she only knows what's in the, you know, in the neighborhood. <laughs> and so just trying mm -hmm. to expose sure. her a little sure. bit to the needs, I guess, that are out there. And then from a financial level, and we actually got this from one of our early podcast guests, Steve Salisi, he told us about an allowance system. So we started an allowance for her and we broke it up for her into a couple different categories. So she has a save, spend, a tithe for the church, and then a separate giving one. And so we break up her small allowance into these and it's often comes down to like numbers of coins <laughs> by the time it's all broken up. But yeah, yeah, we're hoping that she's learning that there are kind of different categories and like, we haven't really talked about the idea of a finish line or things on a bigger picture like that with her, but teaching her that like, yes, God gives us money so that we can support our church and so that we can give. And I just actually a couple months ago, pulled up the ROI ministry website and was going through with her for her $7 that she had finally saved up in that giving fund. She's like, dad, what are we going to do with this? Do you just keep piling up in there forever? And so we're looking through, they have a calculator on there. You can put any amount and it'll say, you'll have this impact through these top 10 ministries. And so we put in her $7 and see like, what can she do? And you know, that's like, whole numbers of people that she could help with $7. And so she started to get excited about that. And we were watching some of the videos of the different ministries and stuff. And so just trying to get her to have like a little piece of what we get to experience on a much smaller scale. We have a lot of learning to do. <laughs> this is only like in the last year, but you know, some of it hopefully is sticking. So I don't know, maybe you guys have some other strategies that you've used with your kids. Right. Well, and again, we're, our kids are at 14 and 12, so we have not come out the other end. So I'm not sure that we have a lot of wisdom there, and we are absolutely still trying to work on it. We've had them, same thing, yes, they divide up their allowance in, into similar categories. And so one of the things we have done is give them chunks of money at the end of the year and just have them decide where they want to give it. And so they have looked through different sort of ministries. And, you know, I think as kids, one of the best things they've done or 
best meaning it's been most exciting for them is they've bought some goats and some chickens and things like that, ministries that will provide those. And so, you know, so we've kind of followed them and said, okay, well, your chicks are probably this old now, you know, I wonder what they're doing right now. Or I wonder if these goats are giving milk yet, this kind of stuff. And so I don't know how much of that really seeps in. They both like water skiing and wakeboarding and things. And they, we have an old pontoon boat right now and they're really want you know, big fancy wake boat like everybody else on the lake has. And we're like, yeah, that's not going to happen. So we're trying to explain to them why, you know, we're like, but look, look how fun we're giving all this money away. And it doesn't feel very fun (laughs) for them. (laughs) And so one of the things that we're about to give money to is never thirst to help build a well. And so what would be really neat is if we could travel and maybe possibly go see the well or go see an area where that's helping. Like if they could like visually be able to, to see something that their money's going to, that would be, and I don't know if that would ever happen, but we're trying to plan a trip for something like that. Well, we are. And this has been kind of a progression in the sense that this last year we went to Costa Rica really mainly for them to, for the first time, see a culture that's quite a bit different than what we are now. I will say, I thought it was going to be a bit more third world than it is. And so we have, I hope this is okay to jokingly say it was third world light, but it definitely showed them a little bit different. But Chris has been involved in a particular ministry in Jamaica since she was a teenager. And we are hopefully going to get down there this next February, which I think will really allow them to see some different things, see people struggling with different aspects of life, but also just see Christians in Jamaica and kind of what their life is like and Mm -hmm. what they have versus how thankful they are and how much they praise and all of that. So, you know, I think despite books and our stories, this just pales in comparison to be able to see it. So we're hopeful. And again, this is something that we have available to us to be able to go. I realize not everybody can simply just hop up and take Mm -hmm. their kids overseas. But this is, as you said, this is where we're electing to spend that rather than boat or whatever it is. Yeah. And I don't know if we'll actually get to travel over there, but just as we're planning our Right. The homeschool trips. I just want our kids to have their eyes open, you know, around the world to see what God's greater world. So we'll see. Yeah, I was thinking there's this concept and you kind of were getting at it with the train analogy. But as you decide what to give to or where to give, there's seemingly limitless opportunities to give and support wonderful work all over the world. But I think sometimes you begin giving and like you said, that third car of the train, that feelings, it comes later and you become more involved as a result of following the discipline of giving. And sometimes you already have a heart for something and it's natural that when you have the ability to support it financially or otherwise, you're inclined to do that already. I'm curious what your experience has been. Well, the reason we give to Burundi, I mean, we already explained why we give to Papua New Guinea and the relationships that we have there. And Burundi is kind of the same. We're good friends with some other physicians that we were in Ann Arbor with during Kurt's fellowship. And so I think because of the relationships that we have there and the trust that we have in knowing exactly what they're doing and just the integrity of the physicians running it, you know, and you're not just tossing it out there like, okay, I hope this is a good thing. Well, and maybe go into a little bit more depth. There were initially six physicians who all trained together at Michigan. And these are mutual friends of Jason Dykstra, who you had earlier on the podcast. 
And those six physicians, which included two other spouses who were non-physicians, so four couples, decided they all wanted to go do missions together and really kind of commit their entire lives to doing that. And so they actually tried this out through Samaritan's Purse and spent two years in Kenya, I believe it was, just to you know say, hey, is this really something we want to do? And so they did complete that. They went back to France and did language training. And then they went to Burundi, really to start from scratch there. They went to an area that really had no significant medical facilities. And these were these were six different physicians with different specialties. And so they could really make a huge impact. They have built a hospital. They built a three-story pediatric hospital there now. And they are just doing some great things. And again, it's not just them doing work. They are doing plenty of work for sure. But a big focus of what they're doing is providing training to local Burundians so that they can carry on that mission. Obviously all done very much within a Christian organization that it's front and center there. So there's plenty of evangelical work doing there. You know, when you look at kind of that when helping hurts, when you kind of look at that, there's some issues that are not perfect there, but they're getting a lot of it right. And again, they will tell you, you know, straight out, yes, we're still figuring it out. We're still adjusting. We're, we're still doing this. And again, having known them from, I guess, 20 years ago at this point and kind of knowing what their hearts is. They've obviously collected other people and other people have been drawn to this ministry. And so that was something our heart was already involved in. And then, yes, as we got the ability to give, that's where that giving went. Back to your question, I think that I'm not sure that we have a lot of wisdom as far as knowing where to give the the money. And I think that may bring up a more general point that, just because we've been given these resources doesn't necessarily mean we have the wisdom of knowing where it should go. And just like in a lot of other areas of our life, you know, just because I have a car doesn't mean I know how to work on it. And in the same way, when I've given this money, I think it's, in my sense, it's wise for me to go find someone else who can help me manage it. You know, someone like an ROI ministry who has put a lot of work into it. I think you you know still need to do some degree of research, just like when you choose a financial planner. I don't try to do all that on my own. I find somebody who I trust, and then I let them make decisions. And I really think that that is the same thing. When we've been given resources, sometimes the best stewardship of them is to find someone else who has spent a lot of work and knows exactly how to steward those resources and turn those resources over to them. And I really feel like, like I say, I keep pointing out ROI ministry, but there are multiple others that have done that as well. And I just, I think that's a fascinating direction that Christian giving seems to be moving. I do think if it were up to each of us as individuals to try to figure out the best way to impact positive change, whatever that looks like for us, it would just be incredibly inefficient. And we've been talking about this for months now, the collaboration that's happening in the global church, just to hear about it has been astounding. But that applies to everyone, not just the people who are doing the work, but for us to sit here and talk about it and think about how can we collaborate? How can we work together? How can you partner with the people in your community to try to become more efficient? But it's more than that. It's becoming involved in the bigger story. And I think that's what's really exciting as I've gotten to meet other people like yourselves who are just sold out for Christ and just out there trying to do the best that you can with the tools that are available to you and the resources that God's provided you. It's really, really encouraging to hear you say that 
we need help. <laughs> you know, it's, I can't trust myself to choose right every time. And that's why I think fostering community and having these types of conversations can be so helpful. I think one thing Kurt hadn't really talked about much that I feel like he's really passionate about is just over the last few years, he's tried to talk to several people about it's not about what you're giving away, but it's about what you're keeping. And I mean, even this morning at church, everyone was reciting the the Heidelberg Catechism, the first question, what is your only hope in life and in death? And it's that, you know, we're not our own, but everything about us belongs to God. And that's our money. That's everything. And just having my son next to me, just kind of barely, you know, reading the screen and reciting those words. And they might not mean anything to him yet, but just hearing him say, like, I'm not my own, but I belong body and soul to God, to Jesus Christ. Like, I want my kids to be saying that now. I want us to be saying that over and over more and more and learning that more and more about ourselves and about our money. Like, it's not ours. Like, why are we trying to figure out how much to give away when it should be, how much should we keep? Like, it's not ours. It's not ours. How much do we need? You know, we don't really need that much when you think about it. And so it's a completely different way to look at our money. And it just, it's a game changer when you look at it like that. Right. I think that's just reassuring to know that, you know, this is not a catechism that was written just in the last few decades. You know, this is centuries old. Christians for centuries have been reaffirming this, that we are not our own. All of this is not ours. You know, and I think in some sense, as we're doing this, talking on this podcast, we feel like we're doing something new and something different. But I think it's actually reassuring to see that, no, 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 this is something that people have, you know, repeated to each other in unison over and over as Christians. And when, you know, when they were writing this catechism, this was the thing they thought was most important. And as we were saying earlier, you know, you don't have to write things, you don't have to do catechisms about things that are obvious. Like you don't have to have a catechism that tells you that the sun's going to come up in the east. We don't forget that. But we do forget that we are not our own. We forget that this money is not ours. And it's not something you say once. It's something you do have to repeat over and over and remind yourself over and over. We're just joining into Christians through the centuries who've done the same thing. And I appreciate what you all are doing to help remind us of this. Yeah, that was a game changer for me when I had that realization that whatever God puts into our hands, it was his, is his, and always will be his. And he just allows us to take what we need. And the rest is really free to join him in his story and to see what he might do with it. But that foundation of everything is his. And like you said, we are his. And so with that foundation, I think everything else flows naturally from that. Well, guys, as we get to the end of the episode, I did want to leave a minute for our manager's minute. As we seek to manage God's wealth wisely, we like to end every episode with one practical action our listeners can take to do just that. So do you guys have a quick suggestion for how people can be using any financial margin they have to serve their communities, advance the gospel, or build God's kingdom? Our manager minute, I guess, was just something fun that we did with our kids one time that I think made a significant impact on them. At least we think it did. But because money can just feel so abstract to them and we're trying to make an impact on them right now, like what we're doing matters and then that our money matters to the Lord. When they were about six and eight, maybe when we would try to get them excited, you know, around Christmas time that, hey, here's some money. Why don't you look through this magazine and you can choose. Do you want to buy a goat for this family or do you want to buy sheep or, you know, or whatever? And we had done that for a couple of years and it was kind of 
maybe not super exciting for them anymore. And they would just say, okay, this, and we'd say, okay, maybe that costs $300. And so here's a check. And we'd write that. And it was just kind of like, okay, great. Yay. So this one year we decided we went to the bank and we got $301 bills and we put these $1 bills in a trunk. And after they had picked, you know, okay, we're going to buy a goat or whatever. And we are like, that's $300, let's say. And so we were like, do you know how much money that is? This is so exciting. Do you know what y'all just gave away? And we opened up the trunk and they were like, whoa, <laughs> like, wow. You know, and they just got their arms in and they just dug in and they were just playing with all this money. We're like, look at all this money y'all just gave away. And then all of a sudden that they could touch it and feel it. They just got super excited. Like, we're like, look, what, look at this. This is so great that we get to give this to another family. And then all of a sudden it mattered to them because they got to touch it and feel it and they knew what they were giving away then instead of just a check. So that was pretty fun. Yeah. Sometimes just the tactile experience, like I think that's a great way to foster that, but any way that you can have something to feel or touch or a person to speak to or something just makes it so much real. And it's true for kids and it's true for us too. You know, just like you guys were saying about visiting some of the places that you have been a part of financially, but also being able to just see them I think it really changes how we give, but also just how we experience the whole process. And so I love that. And I will probably use that at some point when my kids are a little older. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. It's fun. I don't know if y'all like music or worship music, but I really love worship music. And there's a group called Porter's Gate. And there's a song called Your Labor is Not in Vain. And I really, really love this song, especially like raising kids sometimes on yeah. really hard days, feels like your labor is in vain and that none of it's counting. And maybe for you guys too, and the work that you're doing. But I was listening to the song yesterday and I was like, this is a great one for y'all, whether it's with the money or with raising kids. So I was just going to read y'all a couple of these verses because I think it's awesome. But it says, your labor is not in vain, though the ground underneath you is cursed and stained. Your planting and reaping are never the same. Your labor is not in vain and your labor is not unknown. Though the rocks, they cry out, and the sea, it may groan. The place of your toil may not seem like a home, but your labor is not unknown. For I am with you. I am with you. I've called you. I've called you by name, and your labor is not in vain. And the vineyards you plant will bear fruit, and the fields will sing out and rejoice with the truth. For all that is old will at last be made new, and the vineyards you plant will bear fruit. For I am with you. I am with you. Anyway, it's a great song. Yeah, I love that. Well, Kurt and Chris, it's been so much fun having you guys here and sharing your story. I feel like there is so much relatable to your story, not just for me, but for many people listening. And so thanks for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. You guys are great. Thanks for having us. Yes, thank you for what you're doing. It means a lot to us. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we would love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who is living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we would love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't need to have all the answers. They just need a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we would be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge through our website at finishlinepledge.com or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 53. That's all we have for today. We'll see you next time. 